Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt, and this is The Hangover, limited-run podcast from the Dispatch and Dispatch Media that aimed to figure out how Republicans took the shortest trip for a party in nearly 70 years, from total control in Washington to absolute minority. The GOP didn't seem very interested in understanding why, so we tried to do it for them. We tried to answer those tough questions, and here we're going to try to put a bow on it. Well, I hope you guys had as much fun listening to this as we did making it. It was a treat to have the opportunity to talk to such smart people um, with insight and patriotic hearts and good intentions and all of that good stuff uh, and how rare it is we know to be able to have this kind of uh, fair-minded inquiry uh, and get people of a variety of perspectives to come in and talk about it. It's just, uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, and I hope you thought so too. Um, I wondered whether or not doing a conclusions episode was a good idea. Number one, uh, after listening to the, uh, the run of the show, uh, maybe you didn't want to hear me talk anymore. Uh, and number two, I really liked where David Glade left us um, and looking inward rather than outward. Um, and I think that's a, a thing of real value. But I, I didn't want to let uh, the opportunity go by for us to talk a little bit about the what's next part. And I think the what's next part is the part that we all wish we knew. Um, and that's, brings us to point number one in conclusion, people are terrible at predicting the future. Um, one thing that human beings are universally bad at is predicting the future. If we weren't, we would not have the problems that we do. Very often, small numbers of people can be right about what's coming next. Uh, but more often, large numbers of people are wrong about what's coming next. I always use the example of the federal government's lawsuit against Microsoft to stop its domination of the internet. Uh, by the time the lawsuit was over, Microsoft was over in terms of its power on the internet. We invented the pocket computer, the smartphone, and poof, all of those discussions went by the boards. Uh, very often the things that all of the smartest people agree on being true uh, just don't turn out that way. And that's okay and that's normal. Um, our inquiry really started with what happened after the last wilderness period for Republicans, what happened in 2009 and thereafter. Um, and if you would have asked Eric Cantor in 2009, one of our guests, if you would have said, hey, Eric Cantor, what do you think is going to happen to the Republican Party? What do you think is going to go on? He obviously did not know. And Eric Cantor is a smart person who had devoted his life to politics and government. Um, with maybe the exception of Matt Continetti, but probably not even Continetti would have foreseen the, the enormity of the changes that would take place in the Republican party from 2009 to 2016. And that's normal and that's okay. I often talk about how after the 2004 election, I know I mentioned it during a previous episode, but after the 2004 election, the New York Times, if you just go look at what the conventional wisdom was for Democrats and about Democrats after their 2004 defeat, the answer was they have to move to the middle and they have to find a red state kind of Democrat who can appeal on social issues to pry back 
these white working class voters from Republicans, uh, et cetera. It's God, guns, and gays, they said. No one said we should nominate a freshman senator from Chicago whose middle name was Hussein. That was not anybody, no, no one, probably not even Barack Obama would have thought that that would be the way forward to, to a pretty smashing uh, electoral victory uh, in 2009. So we can guess at trends, and uh, we did a lot of good work on that. Steve Kornacki uh, was especially helpful on that, talking about changing demography and what we can expect in different places. But we don't know two things. We don't know what's going to happen, which is to say the Harold McMillan, famous, probably apocryphal, but famous Harold McMillan quote, uh, when he was asked by a reporter what could bring down his uh, government in the United Kingdom, he said, events, dear boy, events. And we don't, we don't know when there's going to be a pandemic, and you don't know when th- there's going to be inflation or not going to be inflation. There are a million variables that all interconnect to create the political climate. So we don't know what the political climate's going to be because we don't know what events will impinge on that climate. The climate has an effect on events, but it's better to think of it as events having an effect on the climate. We also don't know about the personalities. We may not really have met yet or thought about yet uh, the major party nominees uh, in 2024. It's entirely possible that it won't be somebody who we're thinking about right now. This will all depend on who's good at doing things. I know that sounds boring, but the hard part about election forecasting and talking about races and what my experience teaches me is some people are good at it and some people aren't. Um, the, the old saying in politics is it doesn't matter, you know, you can spend as much money as you want on polling and research and ads and all that stuff. But if the dogs don't like the dog food, you can't sell the dog food. And we've seen a lot of examples of people like Elizabeth Warren, Ted Cruz, and others who tried to put together the right issue set, right, to match up to what they thought their party's most energized electorate would want. People just didn't like them. And that, as we talked about on several occasions, Americans will vote for very liberal people, they'll vote for very conservative people, but they always vote for a person and one person or another. And that's especially when it comes to persuadable voters. That's what we're talking about. So we don't know. And if anybody tells you that they do know, they're wrong. Um, the good news in this, though, is that what we do matters. Um, I, there is, um, I, I have a, a tick, a twitch around the phrase, the arc of history. Um, former President Obama was fond of using it. Lots of people, the arc of history and the Martin Luther King quote, including is, it is long, but it bends towards justice. No, it does not. It does not bend towards justice. It does not bend toward anything. You can say that human progress is evident. We, we, uh, our material wealth, uh, our longevity and these things. Uh, yes, we can say that materially things get better or things have gotten better, but we can also point to times in history where they got worse. And they got worse quickly. Um, so let's not pretend like, I'll put it this way, history and the human experience on earth and in life is not evolutionary. It is not moving on from one to the next in, uh, to greater and greater glories. What we do matters. The choices that we make matter. How we conduct ourselves matters. Uh, I often use the example of the Battle of Midway, where if I believe it was Nimitz had 
not steamed directly to the site of the battle uh, and foregone protocol to stop off and refuel at Pearl Harbor, uh, that the Second World War would have gone very differently. Um, nothing, as the saying goes, nothing is written. The upside to nothing being written is that how you choose to conduct yourself, whether you're just a voter, uh, a media person, an elected official, whatever, the choices you make and what you do will have a consequence. Nothing is ordained, and that's good. Um, the question about Republicans or for Republicans, this is the second point, is how long can this go on, right? How long can the Republican Party stay a basket case? And the answer is uh, C.1, we don't know. But let's talk a little bit about what um, what some of the scenarios could look like. So if we listen to what uh, Matt Cattinetti said, um, and we should, by the way, point out there that as uh, both uh, Jonah and Steve uh, were quick to point out that the Iraq war was a huge driver also, not just immigration, um, but that the Iraq war was a huge driver of the populist energy inside the Republican revolt. And that was for sure. And Donald Trump talking about um, seizing the oil in Iraq and how uh, George Bush should have been impeached for it was was definitely hearkening to the the resentment and anger over America's misfortune in the Iraq occupation. And that that is definitely true and should be noted. But if what we heard from Matt about the anger among Republican among the Republican base uh, and resentment of the elites uh, holds fast. If the demographic shifts that Kornacki was telling us about, uh, where you have a Republican Party that doesn't diversify, right, uh, that doesn't bring in younger voters, new voters, that doesn't find a way to expand itself, uh, and if the conservative media, the right wing media that uh, John Podhoritz and I talked about. If those factors remain substantially unchanged, you could have a Republican Party that did what the Democrats did more than 100 years ago. William Jennings Bryan was the Democratic nominee in 1896, 1900, and 1908. Uh, He was very bad at running for president, but because of the straightened, fractured coalition that Democrats had, the prairie populace had all of the power. The resent, the angry resenters uh, had the power, and they couldn't deny the. What you may not know here is that the Grover Cleveland, the uh, other, the the only Democrat to win the presidency between the Second World or between the Civil War and Woodrow Wilson, he was a moderate Democrat. He was a a small government Democrat. He was what they called him a bourbon Democrat. Uh, And he and his crew from New York in the Northeast were harnessing, yes, the angry votes in the Deep South, but mixing them with the the Tammany Hall and machine Democratic politics of the Northeast, and also just a a pro-growth attitude. And it was the defeat of those ideas uh, by Bryan at the 1896 Democratic Convention. And when that populism took hold, Democrats got drunk and they stayed hammered for a long time. It would eventually take that same insanity to hit the Republican Party 
in the form of Teddy Roosevelt and the bull moose to split the Republicans so that the Democrats could get into the White House with Woodrow Wilson. That is how deeply enthralled they were. So is it possible that the Republicans are in a similar populist where where they are so angry and so unwilling to do the things that are necessary to build a broader coalition and win that they live like the Democrats did in that era. Yes, certainly. It is certainly possible that if the Republicans can't get their act together, they could hand the presidency and control of Washington to Democrats for a generation, right? And it could happen. And you can easily see how it could happen. Is it the most likely scenario? I don't know. I don't think it's the most likely scenario, but it's certainly likely, right? It is, it is certainly a possibility. And uh, Republicans who think that they can just breeze past this stuff um, and not think in bigger terms about how to grow a party and diversify, uh, they got they, they got uh, a, a bad hurting coming their way. Now, there's another story you could tell. You could tell the story about September 1974 to November 1980, six years and two months. In six years and two months. The Republican Party went from its lowest ebb in which um, Gerald Ford pardons Richard Nixon and the Republican Party is the pits. Uh, Ford, by the way, had recovered sufficiently enough by just the next year to make the 76 election highly competitive. Uh, And or in the year and a half, uh, had had to make the election highly competitive. And it's just four years from the route that Republicans took in 1976 to a whole different look of a Republican Party. Yes, Ronald Reagan was relying on a lot of the same voters that Richard Nixon had, uh, and all of that was true. But Reagan brought in new voters in new places with new attitudes and changed stuff. He didn't do it himself. Attitudes in the country changed. People became willing to change. The the events that intervened changed the political climate. And as the uh, as, as the as the mystics say, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And uh, Reagan was the teacher for the moment, and everything stacked up for the Republicans to remake the political reality in America in a profound way. Again, just six years after total collapse and catastrophe, uh, the low ebb for Republicans uh, in even worse than 1964, just the pits. So maybe it's like that. Maybe it's like a Democratic Party that can go from Michael Dukakis in 1988 to Bill Clinton in 1992. Uh, you know, this would be if you were to if you were to listen to Parker Poling, you listen to Richard Brookheiser. This is the theory of the case that says just keep putting shots up at the net, right? Keep putting shots on, on goal and trying, and, and sooner or later it works out. Try your best, do your best. And when the political climate comes back around, and I think one thing we should definitely take from Brookheiser is just that he, his, his even temper comes from a lifetime spent watching all of this stuff unfold and his attitudes about partisanship and all of those things are so sanguine I, because he has studied history enough to know that, you know, it comes and it goes. Uh, the, you know, some, some days you eat the bar and some days the bar eats you and you do your best and wait for the next time. And I don't, I'm not saying that's the most likely outcome, but it is a possible outcome, right? It is a possible outcome that Republicans will learn some lessons. Democrats will make some mistakes and 
lo and behold, in three or seven years, uh, the Republican Party is back and it's got a new look and it's in a, a, it's got a governing coalition. It definitely could happen. Um, the, the outcome that we should be all concerned about, regardless of our partisanship, though, is that if the Republican Party does go down the path that, um, uh, that Matt and others laid out, if, if the, uh, if the anger, the addiction to anger and the rejection of norms, and we don't have a better media and we don't have better stuff, uh, if that continues, and again, I'm not saying this is the most likely scenario, but a truly broken Republican party could break the whole country. And that's the scenario where you have, so think about it this way. Scenario A, the Republicans get stuck, the Democrats can take advantage of it, and the Republicans are heading into a long time, a decade or more in the wilderness. Then there's scenario B, that the Republicans kind of get it back together a little bit uh, and things stay fairly competitive. There's a lot of evidence to say that with a nation as evenly divided and with partisan views as hard as they are, it doesn't matter that much. And for the small number of persuadable voters, uh, they don't have much confidence in either party and they go back and forth. So maybe Republicans can, uh, we'll call this the getting away with it. Uh, maybe that happens. Uh, but there is a third scenario, which is and the, the shortest path there would be that the Republicans win back Congress in 2022. And then because of the changes that they're making on the state level to steal elections, um, that you could have, we could, this could, the Republican party could be indeed so sick that it could, it could end the Republic, uh, which would be a, a truly tragic end for all of us. And especially sad for a party that was constituted to save the Republic. And that would be, that would be, that would be the worst. Um, but all three of those things are on the table and you heard how, and you heard why. I don't know which one it's going to be, um, uh, but what are you going to do? Um, which brings us to our third point. However you butter your political bread, um, this is not a Republican party problem. Um, this is an America problem. Uh, the quote from the great philosopher Crash Davis in Bull Durham is sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, and sometimes it rains. Um, elections, the part of the, the problem with all of the catastrophizing and demonizing that goes on this, we are all one, this, if Joe Biden wins, we will, will the, America will be extinct. If this happens, it will all be over. If, if we don't pass the for the people act, democracy will die in America. The problem with all of that is we make ourselves ripe pickings for demagogues. Um, ends do justify means, but not all ends and not all means, right? Uh, if, if this was a dumb debate America had during, uh, the GWAT global war on terrorism was about torture. Um, no, we would never torture. We would, well, obviously if you had a guy with a nuclear bomb, uh, under, uh, the Farragut North Metro station in Washington, DC, you probably might easily convince even the staunchest anti-torture person to get out Saddam Hussein's jumper cables and go to work. On the other hand, you wouldn't torture for nothing. So, not, so the ends sometimes do justify the means, but not all ends and not all means. And understanding 
what we're doing in politics is really crucial for America right now. Because what we're doing in politics is finding a peaceful way to resolve disputes between factions in this country. It is, that is the whole point of our government is for the peaceful distribution of goods and the peaceful resolution of conflicts between the different factions of this country. That's it. It's not another thing. It's not the country. Our, our, our country is better than our government. Our people are better than our politicians. These are people these, that we put in these jobs to a, achieve a result. And the result is to resolve these disputes in a peaceful way. And as we adamantly try to make that into something else, um, you know, anybody who's ever listened to me knows I have a, I, I say that we are now a, a nation of moral imbeciles. And what I mean by that is that we have crowdsourced our ethics. We have crowdsourced our understanding of things. Uh, we have replaced healthy institutions like churches, mosques, synagogues, Cub Scouts, uh, all the other, uh, with a dumb mob mentality, stupid, brain dead, partisanship, factionalism. Um, that very often only seems to exist for the purpose of hurting the other side. And that is how we all got here. This wasn't just how the Republicans got here. This is how we all got here. And the Republicans are symptomatic of this decline in our uh, moral imaginations as Americans. You know, we have to remember um, what uh, David Hume taught us. That is, that reason is the servant of the passions. The arguments that partisans come up with, the arguments that they tell you, well, we got to do it this, this way, and that's why this bill is good. And that, some of, I'll, I'll say uh, it's all sincere in its own way, but m most of those folks would argue, and we've gotten to see that happen, especially with Republicans in just the past eight years, that they would just as happily argue the other side of the philosophical case to win an election if they thought that's what would work. Now, I'm okay with flip-floppery and I'm okay with uh, hypocrisy among politicians. I welcome it. It's fine. Hypocrisy. Uh, Rochefoucauld tells us that uh, uh, vi uh, hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. And I'm all, uh, that, that's all fine. Um, but we shouldn't take them too seriously. These people are, in fact, just politicians. So we, would, we, should, not tr we should not treat them as our moral, spiritual, ethical, whatever leaders, these are just people we are hiring to do a job, which is to resolve conflicts, to get on so that we can get on with the rest of our life. Um, which brings us to people who feel like I do sometimes, overwhelmed and defeated by all of this. It's just too much. I remember walking back from the Capitol on the day of the riot, tear gassy smells and weird vibes and pretty creepy, spooky. And I remember thinking, this is the inflection point. This is the tipping point for my country. And either we are going to get sick and tired of being sick and tired and things are going to get better from here, uh, or they won't. And this could, uh, I could be here walking through the debris around the, the beginning of the end and that we might never have the peaceful transference of power. So when you feel that heavy weight on you, 
you naturally want to say what I, I should be doing more. What can I be doing? What should I? And you, I talk to people who are so concerned and so alarmed and they want to do everything all at once. But that's why I love David Glade so much. And that's why I loved the little sermonette he gave us at the end. He has, in a difficult position, refused to give in and allow the pressures of the moment to steer him from his course. Uh, he has a, a job to do, and he's going to go do it. Uh, Herbert Hoover, uh, who had contempt for Calvin Coolidge, who thought that Calvin Coolidge was an unsophisticated simpleton in a rube, uh, that Herbert Hoover scoffed at the advice that Calvin Coolidge gave him uh, when uh, he was taking office. And Coolidge told him, when you don't know what to do, do the work that's in front of you. Now, Hoover could have never understood anything that simple because he was a technocrat by nature and he would have had a 47-person commission uh, and, and 12 whirligig machines that would have come up with the correct answer. But Silent Cal had the right answer, which is you won't be able to do everything at once. You will get confused, scared, terrified, weirded out. All of those things will happen to you along the way. And when you're not sure what you're supposed to do, look in front of you because there's some work that you can be doing where you are. So everybody, whatever your partisan leanings, whatever your views, whatever, ever, ever they are, there is work in your life that you can do to make America a healthier, stronger, better republic. There, and most of that work will involve, I hate to tell you, loving your neighbor as yourself and not treating them like partisan uh, sparring partners, but instead seeing them as your fellow Americans. But for all of us, there's work that we can do right in front of us to help make the country better and to help save the Republic. I wish it was sexier. I wish it was, uh, a 17-step plan, uh, on a 12-deck slideshow that could tell you, and here's how you save the country. But the truth is it's an inside job. We're all going to have to just work it out on our own. Uh, and we'll have to ask for, uh, Providence's aid, one more time. Thank you guys so much for listening to this. Uh, thanks again to everybody at the dispatch, uh, for Caleb, uh, for Nick, uh, for Ryan, for Stephen Jonah, of course, all of our wonderful guests, all of your time. Uh, this has been the hangover from the dispatch and dispatch media. Dispatch.